0: Hello and welcome to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. I'm your host Gregory Landway. Hello, Regenerates. In today's episode of the Planetary Regeneration Podcast, I'm speaking to Frank von Gansbeke, who is a professor of the practice at Middlebury College uh, in Vermont, and. has a uh, a breadth and depth of experience in the world's uh, financial markets um, connecting with central bankers monetary and currency design um, i met him he was an advisor to the bancor project so he's also dipped his toes into the crypto world and uh yeah i really wanted to talk to him about the state of the economy in 2020 and he brought up some very interesting um points and i think um yeah, I'm excited. Um, I'm excited to be able to share this conversation with Frank to my listeners. I hope it gives sort of a, a glimmer of of uh, the possibilities when it comes to redesigning currencies and the role of currencies and sort of the structure of our financial institutions in how uh, sort of an operating system for society and. Uh, I am very invigorated by the opportunities that lie in redesign of currencies, um, financial systems and institutions um, in order to realign incentives and democratize uh, and um, create avenues towards uh, a deeply regenerative society in which the outcomes of uh, sort of our economic outcomes become realigned with ecological health. Um, as many of you know, um, perhaps as listeners, that's what I've dedicated um, my livelihood and vocation towards, uh, the, the quest to uh, realign uh, economics with with ecological health. And uh, I think this is an important conversation um, in service to that. So um, I learned... I learned some, um, and I I always learn a little bit, uh, a little bit more when I get to engage with Frank, so I'm grateful for for getting to chat with him, and just, yeah, generally excited to keep weaving this diversity of different voices together uh, here on the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. Uh, Please, if you enjoy the content, uh, subscribe, um, like, and uh, leave comments on your favorite platform. I think we're on iTunes and Stitcher and Spotify and SoundCloud. So, um, listen wherever you feel the most comfortable and please, um, Join the Region Network Telegram group if you haven't already. I keep close tabs on that. I'm, I'm a little bit less engaged with uh, broader social media, although I do uh, engage with uh, various different sort of groups um, and chats. And, of course, on Twitter, uh, you can always at me at Gregory underscore Landway. Uh, and uh, yeah, I look forward to being in dialogue with all of you Regenerates out there. Please enjoy this episode and I'll uh, catch you again soon.
1: Frank, welcome to the Planetary Regeneration podcast. I'm really grateful to have you on. I'm really excited to uh, pick your brain and have our listeners be able to get some insight from your perspectives. Um, I've always found your perspective um, insightful and and considered and yeah i'm just excited to get to chat with you it's um just to kind of give everyone a timestamp uh frank and i are talking on may 1st probably this will get released in a couple of weeks um so by that time you know the the way that things are moving things may be a you know it <laughs> will be a little bit further down the river i guess but um Yeah, nonetheless, I'm really excited both to talk about this strange present moment that we're in and and also sort of like the larger, maybe what this um, straight, this sort of shaking of the the global COVID-19 pandemic of our economy invites us to see that maybe we've been avoiding, but has always been there, you know, and, and how the sort of structural challenges um, how, how we can think about those. Um, so, so yeah, Frank, do you want to just give a quick introduction to, to listeners about you, about yourself and, and your work in the world, and then we can just jump straight into the conversation?
2: Sure. Okay, welcome, uh, Greg. So, welcome, listeners. So, um, what I currently do, I uh, teach as a professor of the practice at Middlebury College, uh, finance-related courses, so capital markets, uh, investment management, and introduction to finance. And next to that, I'm um, a founder and a managing partner of a company uh, called Goose Creek Ventures, where I undertake uh, mostly advisory kind of tasks. I do advise um, board uh, organization, or at least um, boards of larger uh, early stage growth uh, companies with a uh, global footprint. They're active in the field of uh, both uh, fintech and sustainable development so on that nexus prior to that i've spent more than 30 years plus into uh, uh, global corporate and investment uh, banking and so my claim to fame is that you know i've been closely involved into three major crisis situations 9 11 um, the 2008 uh, financial crisis and the 2012 euro crisis which actually compelled me to get involved with uh, the situation at hand and at the time, unfortunately, either liquidity or high solvency related issues that had to be dealt with with uh, in collaboration with uh, global central banks. And that actually has, those uh, actually occasions have actually nurtured also my interest into um, the bigger understanding of our uh, financial Um, paradigm the the, the architecture as we've conceived it uh, since 1944 but also I think going to the essence of money I mean in in a sense I think it's it's a very very interesting kind of concept to start thinking about about money and how it actually pans out how actually you know does a crisis come about and how do we actually solve a crisis so including this one including this uh, crisis at hand so That's a fantastic introduction. Thanks,
1: Frank. And there's so much there that I'm really excited to dig into. Um, How would you define the essence of money? You use that term there. Um, And you know, and you can be, um, maybe, maybe, at least maybe invite us to the right geography. Maybe maybe we don't find the exact location, but maybe we could frame out sort of a geography of where the essence of money Um, lives, instead of trying to be too precise, because I don't know, you know, there may be different perspectives here, but what's your sense of things?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, what is important, I think, when we talk about money is, on the one hand, think about the functionality of money, what does money, you know, offers us, or, you know, where does it get its credibility? On the other hand, how is money being created, right? So, how does money being created, and how actually uh, actually gets its um, credibility or its faith in, in the issued currency. So how does this, how is this being emanated? So going back to functionality, I think it is important to identify, you know, that it is an element, uh, you know, to uh, exchange goods. So I think, you know, you need to have a medium of exchange. And so moving away from barter initially, I think it was far more functional and efficient to identify this, this kind of medium of exchange. The, the next one is the unit of exchange, or I think, or at least the unit of measurement and uh, so that it helps to value goods and services. And so you do have some kind of independent measure or gauge of the implied value of uh, those goods and services on offer uh, or that have developed in or emerged into an economy. And thirdly, you have the notion of um, the uh, the store uh, or the value of store, uh, sorry, the store of value. So I think uh, uh, the store of value in the sense that people want to save and, uh, you know, people want to, you know, have or put money on the side, you know, for a rainy day or for a time when they would, uh, you know, be uh, engaged in, in less active activities. So that's an, another kind of, um, you know, uh, functionality. So these are the three main ones. But now we also have, um, you know, with with some, and here I have to borrow, for example, I'm, I'm, um, I'm impressed by some of the work undertaken by some uh, colleagues, uh, uh, the, the CILO kind of uh, cryptocurrency. So they're also thinking about the, um, uh, the store of the ecology. So I think in a sense that, you know, how can we actually develop a currency that might take, that might take into account, you know, the preservation or the regeneration of um, natural capital. The other thing is coming back on how do you, how is then money being created, right? So I think you know we have, in in essence, so the, the 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 main items in our fiat currency base. There's actually two entities, or two group of entities that actually can uh, create money. So the one is uh, the one are banks, and that might sound uh, very strange in the first instance, but we have established, you know, the essence of what is called fractional reserve banking, so this is actually any, you know, deposit that is being made by a financial institution, the bank holds a fraction of that as a reserve and is using the balance to on loan or to on lend it to other activities. And by every single time this extension is taking place of, or the procurement of loans are being, um, uh, being being facilitated, you're expanding your monetary base. And the other one is, of course, governments that we know. So governments are issuing money. And especially right now, we see this with some of the, um, the way we have financed the stabilization programs. So there's money that's being released by Congress to the Treasury. And the Treasury is issuing those money by uh, having those issuance, you know, what we call in a, in a really uh, technical term, Um, you know, being monetized by the Fed. So there is no third party or no third party investor that's coming into the the fray. So you just have the Fed buying up any issuance that's being undertaken by the Treasury. And so in this way, you also create, there's another way where you create great money. So these are two distinct patterns or two distinct kind of entities that create money. Right. So how do you, in in sort of
1: a, very practical sense how do you rate the the current sort of central bank response to the to the covid crisis how would you how do you think they're doing what options were maybe on the table and and how how do you um how do you think sort of as an investor but also as a you know as a domain expert how do you think the fed or, you know, the European central banks are doing, dealing with this sort of sharp economic downturn caused by the need to socially distance and isolate and sort of flatten the curve of the pandemic.
2: Right, so um, I want to maybe distinguish between a monetary kind of uh, intervention and then everything else with what was called, you know, the. Um, the social guidelines or, you know, behavioral guidelines that were, uh, you know, that were being advanced. So um, maybe coming back on the monetary kind of solution that was on offer, I think there were not that many alternatives on offer. So I think, you know, what the the Fed or Treasury has undertaken through what we called the monetization, i.e. the Fed underwriting any uh, subsequent um, uh, Treasury issuance, and also the fact that the uh, or the advancing of uh, loans to small, and, uh, medium-sized companies, including, of course, you know, the the, the 1,200 dollars uh, that were being issued to every single citizen. The um, you know that was there were not that many alternatives, you know, that that were on offer. But um, the whole idea is or maybe coming back to the financial crisis of 2008, I think we had implied or we have applied the same, the similar kind of solution package. So I think, you know, this was the QE. And uh, what happened is that we moved from 500 billion on the central bank balance sheet, all the way up to about 4.3, 4.5 trillion. So in a decade long, so we built this about 4 trillion as a, a manner to resolve the 2008 financial crisis. Yet during a time of the longest economic expansion, you know, 109, uh, you know, uh, uh, subsequent months of you know uh, economic expansion, we were unable to, um, or at least the Fed was unable to reduce that amount. So that demand of what we call quantitative easing, so the amount that was injected uh, through the Treasury issuing and the Fed, you know, subscribing to those um, uh, issuance, I think that's something that. Um, you know we have we have not dealt with in a proper way, and as such, you know entering into the Corona uh, crisis. So we had um, we still had this capacity on the balance sheet, but now we have we're moving from four and a half trillion, so four thousand five hundred billion, to what is projected, and maybe um, in in maybe that number might be revised. But these are numbers from Bank of America. We are we might be moving to nine trillion, so nine thousand billion. On the balance sheet of the Fed, right? So that's again is that's the the, the size of of or that I think it was also um, the four and a half trillion that um, have been added on the Fed's balance sheet was the size of the magnitude of the stress at hand or you know the crisis at hand. This is the uh, now you could question about certain interventions about you know did, would the Fed have to intervene to buy um private equity or junk bond loans i mean this isn't the whole other debate but that's that's not gonna you know that, right that's so an, we, well, i mean there's
1: it. different levels right we could argue we could maybe nitpick about where the money went and who it went to and how that does or does not set up our economy for success in in the you know transition that we're also going through to a circular sustainable hopefully regenerative Uh, economy um, or if we're just sort of propping up the carnivals and Hilton's and (laughs) uh, fossil fuel uh, sectors of of the economy but but more so what I want to I mean more so where I want to go is okay so we have this quantitative easing we have more than doubled or we're projected to more than double the 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 amount of um, dollars on the balance sheet of the Fed what does that do? So earlier you said there were three main attributes of money. There's sort of a, a medium of exchange, a unit of account, and a store of value. What does what happens to the store of value attribute of money when so much liquidity is injected into the economy and put on the balance sheet of the Fed? And what, what like in a in a real way, from your perspective, because I know there's a lot of sort of crypto libertarian folks and people who like think about gold standards and the decoupling want to go back to a future where sort of like there's this very strict um financial policy that's tying that's that's backing money to a real asset um you know which obviously is problematic in some senses and but but what it does is it enables someone who's saving to always know the value of what they've saved. You know, like, like that doesn't. Um, so anyway, what's, you know, it's sort of a clumsy question, but, but is there, you know, what's your sense of this sort of like case of these giant quantitative easing events, essentially, you know, like my savings account is worth less uh, in July of 2020 than it was in, January of 2020, because there's just more money out there. And so I own a significant smaller fraction, essentially, like the proportion, proportionally. Um, and what does that do to, like, there's a trade off there, right? Uh, is, is that true, A, would, do you have a, the same sense of that? And how do you see that from your sort of like domain ex, expert, uh, expert vantage point? Um, That's my first question. And then maybe we can go into layers of, of, you know, pluses and minuses, not, you know, what's the, I don't think there's any black and white here. You know, like there's different levers, people are pulling, there's different positions, you know, I'm more interested in just understanding the consequences in a sort of empirical way.
2: Okay. Well, there are several dimensions, as you mentioned, I think in this sense, Um. The US has a uh, enormous advantages advantage um, point to start off with to undertake quantitative easing. Um, in the first instance is the reserve currency. So um, which means that it is the currency of reference for international trade. And as such uh, today about 70% uh, of all uh, worldwide transactions or between 60 and 70% are expressed in dollars. So I think, you know, the demand for dollars are uh, you know very um, is very underscored and is substantial Now in it is not the case for smaller economies so imagine uh, I, t- I pick up in economy Brazil doesn't have that same kind of leverage as you know the US has or even Europe has with the ECB you know the European Central bank now the um, the fact that um, you know um, what does it do to your into your specific case? is um, in, in, my, in your savings deposit your holdings, or your, the nominal value of your savings uh, holdings. There's about, I think, two, two or three things that are important in terms of future developments. The first one being the strength of a currency, and especially of a reserve currency, is very strongly related to the military power base of a country. So in this instance, you know, the right. U.S. <laughs> yeah. is is being the global dominant military power that, you know, underscores, again, the demand for dollars and the fact that a lot of international trade is expressed in, in dollars. So um, there is an example in, in, in at the creation of the euro in 1999. So um, a French central banker and a German central banker went to the Middle East with the subsequent request to the Middle East. Okay, can we start from now on with the establishment of the euro, could we settle our uh, invoices for oil import into euro? And uh, the people in the Middle East said, yeah, but what do you mean? I think, you know, uh, moving away from the dollar. I said, well, here we have a very strong currency. It's backed by 550 million people. And so uh, we would like to settle, um, you know, our oil invoices in with, with this new currency and do away with the underlying currency risk at least you know being exposed to the uh, euro uh, dollar exchange rate and um, but what do you offer in exchange they said so but what do you offer in exchange and then they say yeah, but what do you mean uh, the central bank said so what, what, what is it you know what that, you know what, what is your concern And so they said, well I think you know they uh, pinpointed to Bahrain and to the fifth Fleet of, you know, the military naval uh, fifth fleet that was established there and that was acting as a protector in case of trouble, local trouble, right? So you had the military base being based, you know, at the core of the Middle East, the oil exporting countries. And that's something that Europe could not provide. It could not provide, it could not compete or come up with a similar type of effort or um, support level, military support level. So that's why, Till this day, in two thousand twenty, Europe is still settling its invoices uh, for oil in, um, um, in in Europe. So that's one of the elements that you do have. It's the um, the fact that um, you have you, the, the the strength of a currency is very much linked uh, to to the power base of, of a country. Now the second element that you do have, notwithstanding that it is you might see some temporary kind of um, inflationary flare-ups. So I think, in the sense that you will see that prices will increase, and as such, if your price increases are not met by similar increases with your wages or your salaries, you you will, of course, you know, um, incur a depreciation of of your um, of your possessions, and you might see this now with a, a world where we're moving towards a deglobalization or more. Uh, a, 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 a world where there is less globalization or a globalized approach, but, you know, we're moving away from uh, international trades. We're doing away with uh, extended uh, supply chains. We are shortening our supply chains. And as such, you might, you know, also encounter the fact that in the case of food production or food supplies, that those might be interrupted. And again, for some locally, for some temporary kind of... Uh, uh, Errors, you you might you might be confronted with an increased price level, and as such, you know, uh, inflation, and um, so that's that's an element where uh, now you have an inflation where you have more money uh, chasing fewer goods, and especially you know a little bit of more money, but yes, as I said, there's about nine trillion that's floating on that balance sheet that has been injected into an economy, and that's a lot of money. So, and then you might come back. Because you know a lot of a lot of um, economists are puzzled why we have with all this injection of money, why we have not seen more inflation right? since two thousand and eight four point three trillion and again now by the end of this year about nine trillion and there's very very little you know um, impact on inflation so far, so people have made uh, some some uh, assumptions on that, so uh, they they because um, we haven 't seen inflation since paul volcker i mean a uh, central banker who died unfortunately um, sh- uh, recently so uh, uh, who had to as major kind of challenge was to tame inflation at the beginning of uh, the 1980s and for reference, we had seen numbers of inflation you know up to seventeen nineteen percent of inflation so which is again it's 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 hard, you know hardly imaginable you know these days so but since that era we haven't seen any inflation to to speak of or any magnitude of of price increase to speak of and there's about three to four kind of elements that were advanced at the time so the first one was the fall of the berlin wall 1989 with a flood of uh cheap uh, at at the time eastern european labor you know flooding uh in in the first instance the European market but by extension also the 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 western market and the US market the second was also at the time the emergence of internet so you had a 24 7 365 uh, constant ability to compare prices and if somebody was had the audacity to uh, raise the price level you could immediately you know uh, change to another supplier uh be it you know located in another in another uh, region but you know um so that was the internet or at least the contribution of the internet thirdly you had automation or the threat of automation so you know there's you know you could see also that there's the human factor or the the human contribution to labor uh, is diminishing uh, to um the advantage of of bots and um Uh, computer-assisted and automated production lines. And fourthly, you had also, um, and this is an outcome of what I would say, you know, the 1980s um, emergence of Thatcher and Reagan policies of, um, you know, fostering liberal economies. And, you know, as an outcome of it, it was the also threatening the existence of uh, labor unions. I think who also had to deal with uh, some of their excesses, you know, and, and, and inconsistencies in their policies. But, you know, that also has led to, uh, you know, the, the that force being um, let or, you know, it had led to a stress um, powerful kind of trade union. So less ability to negotiate prices on behalf of uh, the labor force. And also as such, you know, uh, you know, a lower threat onto, uh, price increases at the level of wages and salaries. So these were about the four levels at the time. So even 2008, post-2008, uh, up until I would say, you know, pre-COVID-19, uh, you know, the reasons why we hadn't seen uh, inflation pick up, notwithstanding that we have such a number of QE, so we said four and a, four and a half trillion, globally, we have 15 trillion of QE. Right. And yeah. what have we seen? We we have seen at the end of uh, 19, one third, one third, of investment grade assets. So 17 trillion were in negative uh, interest rates. So we're negative uh, yielding territory. So that's the kind of conundrum that, you know, um, it's, there's not a clear explanation. And so for people that you were, know, you know, orthodox followers of uh, Milton Friedman, you know, the monetary politics is they couldn't make, well, they, they still can't make sense of it. Because that's. Um... So, so, what.
1: Okay, so there's a, there's a few key pieces there that I, I sort of want to just draw out and reflect back and see if I'm understanding these correctly. One is you were sort of saying, okay, US dollar, reserve currency can effectively be thought of as being backed by, um, it is backed by the U.S. military. It's backed by the U.S. military's ability to protect or control strategic oil reserves, really. That's the that's sort of like the, the foundation of, of the dollar in the same way that you could say Bitcoin is, you know, Bitcoin is backed by sort of like, cryptographic computational power brute force power or or, or really energy the energy that takes to do that computation and can you give me a, like a third example so that people because I'm just sort of wanting to I'm wanting to circle back to sort of like establish a, a, a framework of commonality where we can sort of say okay uh, let's see so at the beginning you said you know money has these three attributes and and, and then also it's a symbol of faith in a sort of social trust of some sort, that people buy in and they say, okay, like it's an emergent property that I believe that a U.S. dollar is going to be worth the same tomorrow roughly as it is today. And therefore I transact in it. And not just me, but companies and nation states. And again, the foundation of that is built on the understanding that the U.S. military has, a certain amount of power and can exercise that power in certain ways and that creates some sort of stability stabilizing effect in in a certain way and then you know i gave the example of bitcoin what's it backed by it's backed by faith essentially in the integrity sort of of this brute force computation can you give a third example of like where a a currency derives its Value from that is different from sort of the U.S. dollar or Bitcoin. Just to kind of like anchor that concept of how we derive value and, and create social consensus about that.
2: Yeah. So uh, I think you you uh, one other examples could be uh, Mexico. Um, in the um, you know late 90, well I think you know after the crisis 94 crisis with the the, the Brady bond settlement, I think you know it being recognized as a petrocurrency so it was backed by oil uh-huh. and as such you know it's it's its currency was closely linked to to that of oil same for uh, the norwegian krona i think you know that was also on the back of its fossil fuel reserves it was said, you know this is like a commodity based currency so that was you know not because of their military power no way by no means you know it represents any military threat but it's 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 backed by so called and you know endorsed um, um, you know, by 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 commodity, other currencies like in Africa, you had some countries that were backed to um, initially the French franc, and then uh, later on by, you know, uh, by the euro. Again, so there's a lot of, um, you know, these have been used by by subsequently by by uh, South American uh, countries, so where the local currency was expressed as or backed by a dollar in collateral. So dollar being the anchor kind of currency, you know, somewhat, you know, uh, use, or you're being used as the gold standard, right? So that's, that's. Uh, but now we we enter into a new world with, um, of course, you know, the oil price we've seen last week for the first time since, uh, you know, um, ever. We're by a futures contract. Um, so the, the, uh, um, the, the, the for the May delivery was trading was was trading at uh, uh, twenty plus negative. So when you bought a futures contract, and the the seller was giving you money to take off, you know that oil supply from get so this oil that was amazing... out of
1: here and store it somewhere. <laughs> yeah, so oil, that was take off my hands. I can't store it. Yeah,
2: yeah. So that's that's the kind of thing. So and also now with um, we we have seen price forecasts for the barrel you know, at $5. I mean, it's this, you know, I think currently is this is trading, uh, like, uh, you know, around the 2020 plus level. Um, but this is, of course, you know, weakening uh, the the um, any uh, currency that would be linked uh, to that. So that's about, you know, uh, it's, it's either military oh. power or, you know, in, the, in the concept of the euro, I would say it's a diversified concept or, you know, in, in, the, in the, you know, again, the euro was not backed by military power. It was on the back of the consumption power and the tax gen- uh, uh, generation, uh, generational capacity um, or a tax base of having 550 million inhabitants, European inhab- inhabitants, right? So, um and the diversification of the economies now you had it initially you had germany uh, france italy uh, and then you know the smaller benelux countries you know holland uh, belgium and luxembourg being part of this 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 currency so you had you know next to the dollar for the first time a construct that was diversified uh was very highly performing economies you had the two engines uh, or the three engines uh, italy and and uh germany and france at the time and now you have a strong like a uh, power base like you know 550 million well um educated and and um you know uh, uh, resourceful in, in inhabitants and wealthy inhabitants
1: so you know maybe um
2: sort of building this conversation
1: towards towards a place where i feel some of the most um creative connection between you and i and and sort of mutual excitement something that I've, I've heard you talk about, um, read and participated in, in some generative um, thinking with you about is is the potential of creating uh, currencies that are backed by natural capital assets in some way, where, um, you know, and I think there's a couple of different ways to go about this, but but I kind of love for you, I'd kind of love to tee tee it up for you to kind of take our listeners on a journey around the logic and the use in in a global sense of having a um, natural capital backed currency available for transaction. And maybe also comment on what some of the pitfalls might be to that. Um, But, but, um, because I think that's a very interesting concept to sort of, source, the value, the unit of exchange, um, the, 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 uh, well, sort of the medium of exchange, the unit of account, and the store of value from a, a common or public good, such as ecological health, that in some way is monitored, quantified, and, and has kind of like uh, relates to the exchange rate relative to other currencies of, of this sort of uh, approach and maybe it's also useful i mean some of our listeners are definitely going to be familiar with bernard leotard's work on complementary currencies um and many of our listeners are coming from the crypto space so they'll have kind of an understanding of kind of magic internet money and you know how, how that is created and backed and exchanged but it's probably useful to to not make assumptions about our where our listeners are coming from in terms of monetary theory and um you know, you may need to do some building there, and I'm happy to participate in that. But that's, I'm very excited to hear, you know, both the explanation of that and also, you know, just kind of like check in on where that conversation is and, and how, how maybe we can get later to how realistic, how, how has the probability of some sort of natural capital asset-backed currency changed in the COVID crisis? <laughs> and we can get to that later. I'll just flag that and we can maybe build up to having that conversation.
2: Well, sounds like a great question. Um, so um, maybe if, if I can break it up. So I think, you know, what we do have at hand with COVID-19 is this major um, conundrum. So we have, again, this nine and a half trillion on uh, the bank's balance sheet. Um, and uh, for me, one of the first metrics was we couldn't say that the crisis of 2008 was fully digested until such time that, you know, we were back to a adjusted uh, to GDP uh, amount, you know, the amount to uh, pre-2008. So at the time, you know, for reference, that was 500 uh, billion. So until that time that we were able to um, scale it back from four and a half to 500 billion, for me, that crisis, the financial uh, or the, the, the financial crisis of 2008 was never fully digested. Or, or processed. The same for now the COVID-19, in my view, that crisis will never be digested or we can never speak of going back to normal, whatever that might be, until we have actually found resolution for the nine and a half trillion uh, that's on the Fed's balance sheet. So given that conundrum, I also uh, we also have been uh, Beneficiaries of, you know, the the Bancor and Gallia's initiative to um, revisit and celebrate the 75th anniversary of Bretton Woods. So, I one of my assumptions is that we will be moving post this crisis to a new Bretton Woods II, and uh, so that Bretton Woods II, you know, would involve, in my view, two major elements. I think we have seen with Bretton Woods one the creation of the World Bank and the IMF, right? So. Um, if we look at these institutions, and I'll come back if you allow me to, what a future monetary design system might look like on the back of uh, natural capital. I think what is foremost uh, required is um, maybe some new institutions. And I know there is a trend towards deglobalization and deinternationalization, but I think it's um, it would be uh, worthwhile to consider to to establish an institution at the global level that would undertake the work of, for example, the Stockholm um, Resilience Center. So to see to what extent, what are our, um, how are we doing with our uh, earthly boundaries in the sense, you know, what are, you know, these, these elements those, uh, from an environmental perspective that are at risk and that we have that monitor on a global scale. Um, the other thing is, is, is that we're also dealing with we have a lot of pollution elements, so I think, in, 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 of chemical nature. So we don't have a trace so we don't have almost the registry of the uh, polymers that have been put into place and how we deal um, in a very, again, efficient manner with the decomposition or the, the shelf life of uh, some of these polymers. So it's another element in, in order to make our environment, you know, uh, more, more um, regenerative and clean and thirdly I mean it's also now coming back so linking it I think it's also an opportunity to revisit the remit of IMF so the International Monetary Foundation uh, sorry the International Monetary Fund and um, one of the things that you know has been used or that you know you could um, be, be revisiting uh, this is a long incorporation with the World Bank is then coming to a new set of uh, special drawing rights um, so in the absence of a, uh, the gold standard. So now there's two concepts here that I want to uh, explain first before we, we, we start delving into that um, new um, uh, monetary design. Or uh, the new paradigm uh, for for uh, a new currency. So I mentioned gold standard. So I think you know at the time Bretton Woods established a linkage between the amount of money that was in supply that was held by the U.S. and the amount of dollars that could be you know in circulation, and that had to be given up in '73 because of the Vietnam War and the debt that were incurred. So that you know there was too much money in supply in relation to the rate, the 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 exchange rate that was set at Bretton Woods. Um, you know, with with the amount of uh, uh, gold that was in, in, in held in uh, in custody at Fort Knox. So, for, you know, President Nixon was, as a result of that, he was compelled to give up that, uh, that gold standard. So that's one notion. The other one notion was, is that, you know, um, people since have been looking at, you know, what could be another anchor, what could be another gold standard or equivalent. So that's why, you know, they've been working towards the special drawing rights and the special drawing rights is a concoct very much like you know the euro was at the time, where we said, okay, let's look, let's call this a, uh, a special drawing right, and that could be composed of you know the uh, the world or the global uh, currencies. So you had the special drawing right was expressed as a percentage of the dollar, expressed as a percentage of euros, uh, expressed as a percentage of the sterling, and um, of the yen, and um and you hear me, so it's still not expressed as part of the Renminbi, so but that's just a, a side note. But the, you have a fact here that um, the special drawing rights never came, were, were, were a major success. So again, the fact that we are looking for a new gold standard, the fact that we do have the construct of the special drawing rights, so if we take those two concepts and then now move how this might look like going forward, I see a um, the, the future monetary design as being composed of three major um, types of currencies. So you still have your fiat currency, uh, the fiat currency being the yens, the euros, the dollars, um, the reals, uh, the rupees of this world, in a sense that you still are tied to um, the fact that there is a money creation mechanism, so there is leverage in there, so there is and there's also, in types of crisis, your ability to bail out, right? So that, as we've seen now with, with um, this current crisis. So there's an element there, um, there's some useful functions that, that you know, um, uh, some of them have been also, of course, you know, very negative. Uh, that's something, you know, the excessive growth, the excessive leverage into the crisis situations that we've seen uh, so far. But there's, I'm coming to that, I'll try to address this in, in, uh, in a couple of minutes. The second one would, you know, as I said, to what you already referred to, to the work of uh, Bernard Lietar and uh, his um, tremendous work uh, towards the promotion of local currencies, right? You know, whether it's the, um, the Bristol Pound or the, uh, uh, the uh, uh, Ithaca Hours. So you have these local kind of currencies, I think, which in these times of major, major crisis are enormously useful in, in terms of resilience. And for you know protecting local business and local um, uh, you know uh, economies. Next to that, you know you have look what I would call uh, the the um, a complementary uh, kind of currency is you know the the, the ones that are crypto based, whether it be Bitcoin or uh, Litecoin. Uh, but they would have more a global, um, apply uh, you know application. In, in a sense that they, then they would be adding on to the diversification and to the fact that you create overall global resilience and then thirdly, you come up with this con, you know this this concoction here where um, we are coming up with this new anchor currency and that would be emanating from uh, the IMF in this instance so the the currency would be a stable coin. So it would be um the collateral, so it would be in the first instance, it would be uh, blockchain supported. It would the collateral would be represented now. We go into uh the elements that we that you alluded to, Greg. So it was to a certain percentage. Let's say 25% could be natural capital. It could be uh so these could be land and forestry, right? So uh 25%. Other 25% could be public health, um, in a sense that we are uh, promoting initiatives that are trying to monitor um on a global scale the potential threat or the next threat of, of um, occurring microbes or uh, viruses of that matter and efforts research efforts in order to mitigate you know uh, their their occurrence or their impact or their virulence so that's um the other uh elements that could be uh, cared to i think it would be 50 percent of those remaining could be uh, going in towards the top performing ESG companies. So the ESG environmental social governance kind of companies. So the most compliant on a global scale would, you know, you would invest in their prep stock or in their share stock. So I think that would be uh, an element again to make, or at least, you know, um, ensure that those companies are, um, or these global companies are active in a business model implementation or embrace that would be ESG compliant. So that would be your anchor. Now, the fact is, you now that why would you use that anchored by the IMF? So the IMF could then uh, allot those currencies on an annual basis to the different economies. And it would do so uh, by applying a new metric. And instead of, you know, using the metric of uh, the GDP, uh, which we have been used, I think, you know, you could envision some of the new metrics that have been promoted. So you have um, uh, Institute of Partnership uh, Studies by... Uh, Rianne Eisler, uh, amongst others, you know, has developed some some key alternative metrics which embrace public health, uh, environmental uh, balance, uh, you know, equality uh, concerns, but also childcare. As we've seen, you know, that childcare is one of the most important elements in uh, later life, the extent that you actually were bereft of childcare or proper childcare, you know, were, actually had a major impact as you as an adult or a human being. Um, So bringing those metrics as a tool to allocate the the stable coin and then the stable coin that would be allocated would then be brought into relation to your fiduciary uh, currency. So now you have a stable coin and on an annual basis, you could see how much money is outstanding or how much, you know, of your currency outstanding, how much stable coin did you actually um, receive on the back of your merits to working towards a more balanced economy. And then you could see you could keep your leverage in check, because at the moment leverage is, is not in check. So we we, we actually we, we we seem as human beings, we seem to be growing and we seem to be adding on um you know on onto that leverage. So for you know, for reference sake, at the end of nineteen overall leverage was to the tune of about two hundred and seventy-five trillion. We had ninety trillion of GDP. So there's no there's no metric, there's no check apart maybe from some uh, supervision type or regulatory type capital uh, uh, solvency regulation or liquidity regulation, but overall there's no check on keeping that number um, under control. And again that's the notion then where you try with that stable coin that is introduced by IMF on the back of its allocation, you could then start to uh, establish a ratio between that stable coin and your amount that's outstanding and try to work to, to make that uh, or improve on that ratio as, as much as you can. So, either by reducing your fiat currency circulation or by expanding uh, the amount of stablecoin you could get. So, how can,
1: can you kind of compare and contrast for a moment how that approach um, differs from or evolves? You know, just like to to anchor, I think, in a lot of people's consciousness, the most visible global stable coin backed by some sort of basket um, is Libra, right? It's going to be the Libra Mm -hmm. project. Um, How does what you're suggesting um, contrast to that as a a vision? What are some similarities and what are some, some differences in approach? Is it simply like the makeup of the portfolio that backs the, the, the currency? Um, or are there other structural differences from your perspective insofar as, you know, the, the institutional ecosystem that it comes from?
2: Yeah, I think in a sense, uh, if you compare it with Libra, there's, there's at least some, some kind of differences. Um, a, it's here you have a multi well, I think it's, it's a multilateral kind of institution, IMF, compared to a private initiative, that's one thing. The second element, it is uh, that you um, that the IMF, or at least in the IMF, in intent potential intent is to issue a potential anchor currency. So you come up with a construct or a monetary design construct that would be an equivalent to gold. So with Libra, that you know, I think it is uh, an idea, or the, the idea is to come up with a complementary currency that would be tied into their. Um, commercial intent or commercial business model execution. And thirdly, I think you know, what we do have with this uh, multilateral uh, stablecoin approach is definitely to try and incentivize or at least redirect the allocation of capital towards initiatives that would benefit our uh, environmental balance or ecosystem, that it would also lead to better public health and uh, almost by means like, you know, the, the invisible hand of, um, that was, was um, uh, referred to in, in the past so that you do have, it's not something by, 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 um, uh, by, by allocation by some central authority. I think it's no more trying to offer some incentives and that, you know, this invisible hand could be, could be at work, could be in operation. And so uh, that's definitely, there's, there's no intent whatsoever on the, on the part, or at least that I'm aware of, of Facebook to actually uh, make sure that the Libra coin in circulation actually would have a beneficial or positive impact on our natural capital base, or uh, for that matter, on, on our public health.
1: Right. Cool. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's super helpful. So, so now sort of circling back um, what do you think the opportunity what do you think the opportunity or or maybe uh, detrimental impact of a you know of the COVID crisis or as you're sort of framing it a deepening of the existing structural crisis that we entered into in 2008 it sounds like you're sort of framing it as we're actually like still in that cycle and we're going a layer deeper now due to this sort of pandemic impact, um, you know, what, what is the opportunity that a, a sort of quantum leap in our in monetary policy offers to, to transform that dynamic? And what are some of the risks associated with this crisis moment that may make, you know, some sort of restructuring impossible?
2: Um, yeah, I think in the, the major risks are, uh, the fact, um, you, or maybe if, if you start off with some of the values that you would like to see come out of this crisis. And as I said, you, you're right in the sense that I see this as a, as a strand or not a layer of a pre-existing crisis of the 2008 financial crisis. So, some of the values or the ethical mindset that you would like to see modified is um, thinking about intentional, you know, but you know, intentional investment consumption, um, inclusion uh, or inclusive, um, cooperation or cooperative, uh, more equal, you know, uh, as part of the inclusion, uh, less divisive. Uh, also looking at uh, some t- level of international stability, right? So this is another question, or at least that you hope that this, that, that we, we we could move towards some in, in, international stability or assume that we can work towards an, uh, establishing some international stability. And then, then the notion, uh, whatever that might be. So uh, thinking about the valuable project, valuable company, valuable city um and valuable currency so that th- this is like you know somewhat you know the the kind of uh, dimensions or criteria you're looking at in order to um to frame um your your post-covid-19 kind of uh new order or or um societal design now the risks of that are maybe the fact that we don't have at the moment there's no proclivity towards international cooperation there's definitely absence of leadership Right. So we do have the U.S. is, is, is totally absent in, in uh, undertaking an effort to take the lead and uh, we, as we've seen with this pandemic but also I think that was already preceding uh, you know, since, since the latest uh, or the, the uh, election of the current administration the somewhat abdicating of the, the leadership role that the U.S. could undertake or had been undertaking. Uh, you know, whether it's on a military or international polit- political at, or at the G20 level. So that's, you know, uh, uh, advocating. And there's a major risk so that everyone it's, is doing this on its own because the, the magnitude of, of this is, is it's a world scale type of um, crisis. So it is, um, if it's everyone um, for his own. I think, you know, there might be some economies which don't have um, the depth and, and, and the stealth to, to address this crisis uh who who might suffer tremendously i think you know whether it's you know because of economic social disorder or even famine uh, as a result again of uh, disrupted uh, supply chains um so that's that's you know an element uh, on the international scale and again at the local economy i think it might also be um, if if even you know within this nation i think we don't see uh, this crisis as something that we're we're all uh, in the same boat, and we're all citizens that are faced with the same kind of uh, challenge. Um, I think we also might, uh, you know, face face uh, hardship and um, uh, a lot of trouble.
1: Sorry about that brief delay. Yeah. I just put myself on mute.
2: Um, yeah.
1: um I was just going to ask what what do you so in in analysis of the current economic situation? I see people generally, you know, falling into two camps, and those two camps seem to reflect whatever their preconceived, habitual, automatic sort of thought patterns were before the crisis happened. One is. There's no structural problem with the economy. There's gonna be a temporary you know, challenge and then the economy is gonna spin back up again and it's gonna you know, get cranking again. And the, you know, sort of like markets will boom and everything's fine. And then the other people, are sort of like the doomers. They're like there are such structural issues and have been for so long. Peak oil, climate change, you know, structural issues with the monetary system and and sort of financial industries. That uh, this is going to just be, this is the minor shock in the system that's going to send everything careening into some sort of medieval post-apocalyptic Mad Max scenario in which the you know. we're going to see supply chains collapse and and all these different things it seems like people are like firmly in either of those two camps as pundits Um, I'm curious yeah I'm curious if you can add a little bit more subtlety and nuance like what are the actual triggers like like what are things that and and where do we actually have levers or, or opportunities to you know, um, create our own destiny here as business owners, as policymakers, as citizens, um, you know, so I guess number one, what's your sense? Where are we heading here? Are we going to, is the economy going to get back to sort of like a normal for a while and then we'll go through another collapse cycle and another one who knows, or is this going to be a deep down cycle and there's going to demand a reinvention Um, or, or somewhere in between, you know? Um, what's your sense of things? Where are you, you know, where are you gambling? If you're, if you're making a prediction, where are you putting your, you know, your chips down?
2: Well, I, um, I think that will, as a result of this crisis, I think that will have a deep psychological impact. I think whether it's long-lived or short-lived, I think this, this is really gonna have, um, you know, some long-lasting psychological effect on people. And again, that proclivity towards consumption, or the notion of consumption and investment. So, um yeah. And I think you know the the um, the depth of of that uh, trauma, that psychological trauma, is linked, of course, to the magnitude of the intervention. You know, the the stimulus packages that were and we're still, you know, working. or Congress is still working at additional packages. So we're still not uh, at, uh, or we have still not uh, seen the end of the tunnel in that in that regard. So. Um, what are some of the opportunities? And I think what I um, uh, I just want to go back. So just in before the end of 2019, I remember that um, uh, Blackstone, with all due respect, took a majority stake into um, a company called uh, uh, Majestic Labs. And so uh, they had it's a Russian, or at least it was owned by a Russian, uh, London-based. And uh, they had their major stake was in two dating apps, and the company was actually valued at about three billion. So Blackstone took a uh, majority stake in in, in two, two two dating apps. So, uh, and as I said, the company that uh, proposition was, you know, uh, worth three billion or valued at three billion. And I have nothing against dating apps on the country, but again, in terms of what is it, what are our major challenges that we're faced with as a society? And to what extent is capital allocation taking place at a, or in a very uh, judicious manner of um, the um, uh, that that process, that financial or that economic process, right? So coming back. So maybe if if we just, uh, uh, if you allow me, I think where, where we currently uh, impeded in our access is the fact that we are allocating capital without having that ability to what I call internalize the externalities, right? So the externalities of environmental damage or the fact that we're depleting natural capital or that we're uh, causing uh, in, 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 in some essence also a um, absence of, of, of um, you know, um, a health element. Uh, if you look at the pandemic uh, with the opioids uh, so these are elements that we're in our allocation of capital. We seem to be, we don't seem to be capable of taking into account in that pricing or into come up with a, a system for you know, uh, allocating capital in a more wise kind of uh, format. So we're still using, a, uh, in the case of equities, you know, the, the uh, capital asset pricing model you know, that was designed by, by Sharp for which he got a Nobel Prize in, in, in 1990, if I, if I remember. So, uh, and that's purely looking at market data or market observable data. We're not taking into account, for example, you know, if that allocation will have a major trigger point into our in, in environmental balance, um, you know, that's not taken into account. Or whether you allocate that capital to Starbucks or to uh, Exxon, I think you, know, you don't take into account the externalities of that capital allocation, even to a lesser extent, the fact that you take it into account uh intergenerational kind of impact so uh, like you know more indigenous tribes are taken into account so they never take a decision without you know knowing okay what is that decision today in what sense is it going to impact uh you know our grandchildren uh, or uh, you know the people that follow so that's a kind of mindset that we are still you know uh struggling with and 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 so hopefully there will be impetus to start you know giving more consideration to how we're allocating capital in the debt and capital markets. So how we, are we setting a price to the fact that we'll allocate capital with a certain risk pattern? Are we able to now uh, see to what extent uh, we, we, we are uh, incorporating those um, those considerations? So um, the same fact we have over uh, between, uh, for the, for the lar- largest part of uh, the, the, the decade between 2010 and 2020, we have used about five trillion in equity share buybacks, five trillion, so 5,000 billion, uh, leading up to the fact that we, you know, the companies or CEOs said, okay, we don't have any other investment, we don't have any other research or R&D opportunity that we can actually consider. And that is worth our while to put this capital at risk to the benefit of shareholders. So that's something, uh, and now we look at you know, where we stand at uh, all the issues that we have. So um, we're still faced with, you know, the, the, uh, the decarbonization of our environment. I think that should now become clear that it's one of our major, major kind of concerns. So how can we decarbonize the economy? Uh, how can we work on, you know, making our food or agricultural uh, supply more sustainable? Um, so how can we actually then work at our public health so uh, one of the comments of uh, some of the researchers said about the virus is that you know we wish we had more money being offered or being uh, be, being invested in in our research efforts in the past decade so that we would have more um, resilience in in coming up with with solutions for the current uh, current pandemic so that's what you know i call that, that the 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 pile of Elements of concerns with respect to the decarbonization of our economy. The fact that we become more resilient in every layer. So whether it be food. Uh, resilience or public health uh, resilience. The other elements that we, we should also be taking um, into account is also the fact that we have ignored uh, some 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 of those elements is the the quality of our press. And the independence of its press, or you know, and also the fact that it's third-party uh, verified kind of information, our democracy—the fact that are we, you know, what, what happens to some of the, the the privacy concerns that we might have about our data, about the fact that we are we can be traced, uh, and so by extension also the democracy and the design, and then the third layer, is is, is infrastructure. So making sure that we do have longer-term uh, investments undertaken, whether it's for connectivity. Um, and also for the fact that we haven't had seen major infrastructure since the Second World War, right? So if you look at the the, the quality of our highways, I mean, this is nothing has been done in a major way since, uh, or or bridges for that matter. Or, um, so that's something that's also need to be concerned. So to your point and to your question, you hope that we do have a better kind of priority setting um, in in uh, in terms of the allocation of our capital. So I think you know that we do uh, see. Uh, a bit the, 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 the forest for the trees and that we identify those major challenges, um, again, that are so, that, that should be considered a priority for society in order to uh, live a more healthy, more happy and more balanced uh, life and, and, and be living in a more balanced environment. And again, with all due respect for, it was the magic lapse, it was not majestic, it was the magic lapse investment for BlackRock, there should still be room for that. But again, if you see the valuation 3 billion majority stake in two dating apps, and with everything else that's out there and that's outstanding there. So, uh, and we still have to wait for a unicorn in the ESG sphere to occur. So again, there's a lot of challenges and I hope that this crisis will, you know, once and for all, maybe give a trigger that we reconsider our priorities and and reconsider our thoughts on on, on that front.
1: So what are the... um I mean, I'm always sort of. I, I was just uh, actually earlier today. I was just um, tweeting that you know it's not enough to hope. We have to become hope. We have to we have to embody what it what is needed to catalyze the change, the transformation. So, what what is it that we need to do right now in order for this to initiate the process of imbuing our political system and our economic system, our sense-making and our decision-making apparatus with reality. (laughs) Because that's fundamentally what I'm hearing you talk about, which is bringing in the appropriate measures and metrics, ensuring that there's integrity around data and um, ensuring, yeah, just, just all of these things, how, how, wh- what do we need to do? I mean, th- so that's, that's just a question I'm holding and maybe a, a more pointed question I'd love to hear your thoughts on is, does liberal democracy, does, does a um, social democracy approach like the Nordic countries have or Europe more broadly, for sort of a liberal democracy in the United States survive this? Does the, does, yeah, does it, or doesn't it? it? It seems like it's kind of up in the air and, and both on a positive and negative, right? I mean, we could be fearful and we could sort of, we could, we could notice maybe the slide into, you know, ethno nationalism and these sorts of things, but we also might see some of the seeds of, of radically different social coordination mechanisms that are more participatory actually than a representative democracy. So it's actually like an increase, like a quantum leap of grassroots engagement and social coordination and participatory democracy and markets that that I see happening in the crypto sphere. You know, nascent in the crypto sphere, but not yet at any level of adoption, but yeah, I'm just, um does liberal democracy survive this or or does it demand that we reinvent it and reinvent our approach to governance and markets radically or or can we salvage it somehow can we make it good enough so that it's you know just like you know it's it's like liberal democracy 2.0 instead of something that's completely different
2: yeah okay there's a lot of questions here to unpack um um I think the first one would be about how to survive. I think in the sense, it's uh, definitely a economy, as the uh, US definitely has the ability to overcome this crisis. Uh, I think it's even with all the setbacks or the fact that you might have to overcome the internal strife or the fact that there is different fractions uh, fighting for uh, you know, the um, tension span. Now, um, the, but the fact is, one element that you do have is uh, an element of uh, credibility, right? So if you are, as a result of this crisis and you were already for a long time, uh, if you are the only market maker in town for treasury securities or for uh, mortgage backed securities and now for corporate loans, and this for the second time running in less than a decade, right, so there is an an element, how much is this, you know, a a free liberal kind of economy? I think in, in the sense that, you know, the central bank is now setting the prices for a uh, the majority of of the capital security. So that's an element where you you have to you know if if for you to be credible and for you to have that ability to um, uh, to be adoptable and in or at least you know to be viable by by or uh, that you create some kind of envy uh, from from any other. Uh, competing state I think you need to change tack in, in a major way so again it's it, that has to do with your credibility as uh, the basic assumptions of your society and the design framework of your monetary setup now what is it that need to change I think in 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 this census I think you have um, you know if 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 you look at some of the um, uh, the, the, the two things that are really important in um or at least you know the three power uh, elements that that thrive this world to make this world turn around so you have um a is money b is the power base and 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 th- and thirdly is sex so now that we have our 15 feet um you know separation i think there's this this there's, there's less of a leverage opportunity there but on if you look at the money side and the power base it is a um very important here that we still look at, you know, to what extent can Wall Street, you know, wake up and and, and Wall Street will, by extension, you know, the the world, in a sense, you know, um, knowing in their knowledge that, you know, these leading figures also have children, grandchildren and might be looking at a legacy. And for some of them who've been, you know, long enough into the space, you know, whether it's 2008 and now 2020, I think, you know, how, what is their willingness to shape and alter the legacy? Because looking back, and again, I put my 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 hand above my own head. I think it's not you know something to be to be very proud of, or to be very to say this is something to be showcased, right? So there's definitely a deep kind of requirement to revisit some of the assumptions, some of the objective setting, and some of the execution of of uh, those those elements, and um, that's. Uh, again, that's going to require enormous amounts of um, kind of revisiting some of the bases. Um, as I said before, you know the way we 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 allocate capital uh, in 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 using. Uh, with all due respects for formulas or uh, methodologies that were really valuable at the time of creation or inception, but who are today totally totally outdated. Those those methodologies are totally outdated. So I think it's. Um, Wall Street, or at least you know the financial center at large, where center at large owes it to them to come up, maybe in cooperation with with academia, to come up with more adjusted models to allocate capital in a more uh, judicial manner, taking into account you know the natural capital or public health and our other uh, societal uh, challenges. Now, on um, the other thing is is you know what we also have to uh, you know um, as as a society, I think, and what I've not always been identified or seen as a set it's it's um, um is the way we set our priorities and the way we actually allocate capital to those priorities i um once sat and this is not so long ago five years ago on a uh, plane to san francisco and there was a lady she was uh, uh, from pittsburgh and she was a pediatric uh, surgeon and she was moving to facebook to uh, san francisco because she was offered better pay and a better family life. Now, <clears throat> talking about reallocation of resource. So now you have a, a, a you know very, a qualified person working towards you know the benefit of of childcare, and that being removed, so she was being reallocated to working, towards the enhancements of a social platform. Again, both of of them have inherent benefits and advantages, but there's a weighing off in terms of the priorities and the the the, the challenge that we face as a society. To what extent, I think, are we can we sustain this or are we willing to sustain this or we saying no this can't happen and then the question is how can we make sure that this is not happening so is are sufficient you know resources being allocated to the salary of a um a, pedi- a pediatric uh, surgeon in comparison to what's on offer uh, the pay scale of facebook so that's a question that you know we we, we have to to ask ourselves and, and uh in, in in and again and that's coming back to um, our capital allocation uh type of uh, question so um then the other thing is i I also come back on our monetary design so we have uh, we're creating money through the banking system and as a result of uh, the outcome of of the application of the fractional reserve system so should we also be looking at other uh, incentive systems or schemes so whereby you could actually have the fiat currency have local currencies cryptocurrencies added to that Um, To provide uh, additional resilience and to overcome these times of crisis and that now coupled with a new um, Anchor currency in the form of that stable coin that we uh, discussed uh, a couple of moments ago
1: Can we can we
2: Well, I think it's just I mean What we have I mean, I think we are right it's happening
1: there is there are there are cryptocurrencies there are complementary currencies um is there any risk that you know central banks sort of go get get, get react, reactionary and start trying to stomp out some of the grassroots initiatives you know for stable coins and you know cryptocurrencies and um and and complementary currencies um
2: yeah or right.
1: or or, or yeah or is it more likely that they just start adopting it and it starts becoming part of the policy landscape
2: yeah i think what um before i answer your question i think there's two elements that i want to you know and this is not from the the distant past so i think um you had the manhattan project and the apollo project so in the case of the atomic bomb and again this is you know i think but i'm looking at a challenge so this was about it took three years to garner all the human capital required to, to put in place an atomic bomb to fight off the Nazi challenge in the Second World War. It took eight years, you know, to put or to garner sufficient human capital around uh, in the U.S. to put a man on the moon in the competition during the Cold War with Russia. Now, the, the same thing here is with this crisis. You could say, okay, what is now the most important element is that we do find um, an element either to enhance our immune system, or you know to work at a vaccine that's very you know efficient. Uh, so that's that's maybe our most uh, urgent kind of challenge. But immediately thereafter, is to come up with a new financial construct because what we do have the foundations are non-tenable, right? So you can't have nine and a half trillion sitting on the balance sheet of a federal uh, of the Federal Reserve or a central bank for that matter, you know, uh, without actually thinking, okay, this is this this we can survive. So. There has to be an element and what's missing in my view is the fact that we don't have um, as objective setting those challenges that are mostly crucial to us. So I think uh, by extension, we have the 17 uh, United Nations articulated social development goals. I think we can be a lot more crisper and identify yeah. you know, what are those elements that are extremely, extremely important to us and tie that in so create that scarcity around those elements and tie it into the creation of that stable coin. And again, I, I think it's, it's something as I, say, I, I refer to the Apollo or to the Manhattan, um, project. Um, you know, I wish that the Libra or the Facebook was more, uh, not only ambitious because it's a very ambitious plan, but was more considerate of the challenge that we face as a society, as a human uh, society, It it would be a slam dunk.
1: Yeah. If, yeah, they, if Libra they, had they taken it. that
2: opportunity and they didn't, right, yeah. so they didn't take they didn't. that opportunity, so the fact is, is there, are, is there another group of people capable, and I said, I want to make reference to Silo uh, in, in that regard, I think, you know, they have all the basic constructs that might, you know that might be very uh, promising um, but but the fact is that you still have other issues to deal with in, in, in the sense that you, um, for example, had you about uh, leverage or some amount of leverage or we don't we have to mimic the leverage that the fiat currencies availed in the past but um, that's you know uh, one of those challenges. Um, well actually you know just to, just to,
1: to interject there for a moment um, Cello's cool I know some of the people on that team I, I actually I know several other sort of more um, less well funded but probably in my opinion more technically robust attempts for, you know, sort of a full stack stable coin with appropriate community governance and the ability to assemble the the backing, et cetera, et cetera. I don't have any doubts around the technological feasibility. Um, What I think the biggest challenge is, is, you know, Facebook... Facebook's Libra project was opportunistic. Fellows for, I mean, I really like the team and, and, and uh, uh, you know, with all due respect and with the possible, you know, the, maybe even the high likelihood of being wrong. I look at their portfolio of investors and I worry, you know, MakerDAO had a governance crisis. And that governance crisis was due to the way that the the pressure, the investor pressure. And if you're truly trying to create the governance over a sort of like public benefit, decentralized, well governed currency, there actually can't be an extractive profit motive by the people who fund it you know, it's it's a public good. It's like a basic necessity of a, of the economy. And so the way that many of these projects are structured, there is an extractive, there are investors who have time and again, been extractive in their approach to their investing, um, who are major token holders or equity holders and, and have governance power over the project. And so, I get very worried about that, to be frank. And, and whether it's Libra or, or Celo or, or MakerDAO or any of these projects, um, the, the, there's a demand for the larger economy to work in, in such a way that is rooted in l- living capital the health of our communities, the health of our ecosystems, um, the stability of our commerce to be r- really well-governed. And um, that's, I think, to me, that's the biggest issue in in the present moment around all of the project. Region Network has, you know, we've done our best to, approach this thoughtfully but obviously there's also a tension there there's a challenge you know how do you engage receive investment capital and and in a project dedicated to um, accounting for uh, provisioning uh, public goods as in order to create positive externalities and internalize existing negative externalities into the economy how do you do that in a way with with all of the existing pools of financial capital essentially having perverse incentives um mm-hmm. it's a challenge that's the to me that's the biggest challenge we have at this moment it's ubiquitous um it's a ubiquitous chicken or, chicken or egg situation
2: <laughs> yeah I, I like your reference to the fact that there are a lot of perverse kind of um um, elements at work. Um, I think you have to have. It, it's almost like a foundation should be in charge of, of uh, efforts like a silo, uh or a cello. Or sorry, in the in, the, um, uh, in the in those efforts. So where people actually do, or at least are um, separated from their desire to extract. I mean, it, 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 it's, it, it's an element where, and this is all, hence my idea to lodge it with an IMF. Where, uh, but then you have with the IMF, you do have the international, the struggle, or at least the, 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 uh, the challenge of the fact that it's so many nations trying to govern, uh, you know, one, one, one single issue here. But I think if, if the, you know, if your primary concern is the fact, okay, that there can be individual private uh, profit extraction, I think that the best place would be to, to lodge it at a level of a multilateral institution like IMF. Uh, now, but I strongly believe too in the fact, you know, how can you en- enhance governance? uh so but now with with efforts like you know region network the fact that you do have iot the fact that you do have smart contracts um i mean there's elements there where, where you actually can endorse the level of decentralization or decentralization in in your approach and make this viable uh at least if you put your natural capital as one of your main levers into the stable coin cards but uh...
1: yeah yeah, yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, you know, obviously, if you think about putting natural capital as one of one of the uh, value backers for a stable coin, which is which was which was the driving inspiration for region Network's birth, um, and and our our uh, our slow movement towards a decentralized oracle network. Of ecological state is what I believe is needed for that to happen in integrity. So anyway, uh, uh, if you consider that the um, obviously many listeners might say, well, what happens if you you know there's you know uh, an options call or whatever, and how <laughs> you going to think about you have to liquidate what's backing the currency? Um, Wow, that's scary. Uh, I, I don't, I mean, it's not to, that's not actually what's backing it. It's, it's, uh, but, but, you know, it's sort of a, there's an interesting rational or, or sort of like logic, logical quandary there. And um, there's also something that was counterintuitive to me that you were explaining in which, from, your, from the perspective that you've been sharing, when you actually dig into the mechanics of how the value streams work, when the natu- when natural, natural capital assets will tend to be undervalued when they have the most regenerative potential. And that sort of like guides uh, the process of economic correction in service to ecological regeneration can you speak to that cycle a little bit Uh, because that's something that i found very interesting and and novel to how i had been thinking of it up until the point where you shared your white paper with me maybe even a year ago i think that was
2: Mm -hmm. well i think in in a couple of things so i want to come back for you know on on your call option to extract value on the back of collateral so what about an insurance you know for survival on earth Right, because this is what, you know, you're actually, um, what you try to to work towards or to at least enhance the value within the collateral basket is, you know, those assets that might, you know, give you that survival within that certain bandwidth, you know, of temperature, uh, temperature span that we have for life on Earth, right? So this is a... Uh, um, it, this is like, you know, what, you know, the way I would like to phrase the fact, you know, if, if you're looking at your natural capital base within a, you know, stable coin collateral, right? So this is your insurance um, against, you know, or making sure that you can survive on this planet within that, within that uh, narrow bandwidth of, of temperature, you know, that the human species can survive. Right? Coming back on, on the, the, the extraction, or at least, you know, the value of proposition of the, um, the the currency. So, what is it that at the moment? We are looking at too many uh, variables that are, um, you know, too far um, positioned, or too uh, already uh, too, too too separated from actually the core values that are at stake for, uh, if you now call it for lack of a better word, for our survival here on on, on Earth. I mean, this is. When, when you're looking at, I come back, so apologies that I'm coming back on um, at a time, a brilliant kind of um, um, you know, methodology to calculate your cost of equity or your cost of capital. I think, and, and the nice thing about it is you could expand or modify that, that, that methodology, that formula to take into account the externalities. But the fact is, if, if you do this for fixed income, you do this for, uh, on, 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 on a uh, equity capital, you, you do need to have the ability to work on a global scale. It just can't be that somebody in Pittsburgh or somebody in, you know, um, in LA is working on this. So I think you need to have universal kind of adoption. And uh, I think that's a major challenge. And, and you know, remember in 2018, Nordhaus got the Nobel Prize for all his work on the implementation of a, um, a carbon tax. Right. And we're we're in 2020 and nothing has happened in terms of, you know, uh, the carbon tax, 10,000 US economists signed, you know, a uh, paper and said, you know, they were requesting and endorsing the implementation of a carbon tax at $40 that would be increased every t- with every year by $10 and nothing happened. But of course, you know, you have the current administration, but the, the, the fact is that notwithstanding a Nobel prize winner and, you know, 10,000 economists backing your notion or your, your concept that is totally, totally in line with ensuring a better life on Earth, where it's not, you know, survival on Earth, and you can't get this happening, right? So this is this is the challenge that you you you're, you're faced with now with this pandemic. Perverse incentive,
1: perverse incentive 101. And what's the Upton Sinclair <laughs> quote? It's something like you you know you uh, you you can't get a man whose paycheck depends on not understanding something. To understand it,
2: <laughs> true. But there is an element. There is an element in that is, is the fact. I, I think you know the biggest challenge in this regard. Uh, although I think you know, if you can't just say, um, well, I, I think you know, um, uh, you know the the the, the greenhouse gas is to me. It's I can't see it. It's intangible, right? So as such, you know, I I it's for me very difficult to capture. You know when when I see the smallpox, okay, I can I can see people, you know, suffering from the smallpox or I see somebody, you know, being resuscitated on a ventilator. I can see this, oh, this is the risk in the absence of that. But now we have seen so many climate calamities, you know, uh, in the form of um, floods and, 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 and wildfires and what have you. I think it's, it's, you know, I think it's almost criminal to ignore that you, um, you can't actually, um, you know, change that, that kind of element. So, and I, I do have to, 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 to say in, to that, you know, the, the, the bigger challenge is, um, you know, in the case of JPMorgan Chase, JPMorgan Chase, since uh, signing the Paris Agreement in, in 2015, had, so the, the bank has added 250 billion to uh, climate, uh, sorry, to fossil fuel uh, industry. So 250 billion, they have a a balance sheet of about 3 trillion, 3,000 billion. And so 250 billion went to the fossil fuel. So this is 2015. Now, the notion of stranded assets, even before what we have uh, now with the pandemic and uh, the strife between uh, Saudi Arabia and and Russia about the the amount of, of oil supply that should be agreed upon between the OPEC members, you had the notion of stranded assets. So, and again, I'm very, very you know, uh, puzzled by the fact that institutional investors are not asking more questions, again, about this allocation of capital, what I said before, you know, how, what is the price methodology being applied to allocating 250 billion of capital on your balance sheet in the knowledge that this is, A, is going to become a stranded asset. This is, this is knowledge that we had in 2015, uh, sorry, 2015, we knew about this, and uh, that this can happen without any repercussion for management. I mean, this is really um it's 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 boggling the mind. And again, you you start to think about uh Jamie Diamond, and I have to give him credit for that, that he's you know, he he ran the business round table. And we started the business round table in um in 2019, I think it was August 2019, you know, tried to promote the um the triple bottom line. So the fact that, you know, the B Corp type of, of, of objectives next to your pure financial bottom line. You would also be embracing social governance and environmental bottom lines. Now, this is, I would have said, you know, allocating 250 billion of of uh, new uh, bank loans to the fossil fuel industry. I mean, is is not is not doesn't seem to be indicative of embracing that kind of triple bottom line objective, right? So, now, how do you change that? How do you how do you um, you know, bar this major crisis that we have faced with? I mean, how do you change that? I mean, this is. I think this is really working on the uh, the, the the conscience of um, the leaders. So I think you know, with with think um, uh, from BlackRock has now been 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 more proactive in in a sense that uh, you know he's getting more involved. Um, he's getting involved, for example, with um, the ECB into the deployment of the um, uh, stimulus package and. The green notions uh, of that stimulus package so i think that's all credit to blackrock but it, it it needs you know a more vast a more comprehensive approach and as i said it's, it's more like a type of a um, manhattan project or a polar project to rechange change the foundations within uh, the finance industry how we allocate capital and take into account and price for these externalities i mean this is the biggest challenge that we have and uh, this is now to work on on the conscience of of you know, the people in charge.
1: Sorry, my um, my kiddo just walked in there a second ago. Mm-hmm. So I'd muted. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think the, the sh- awareness, consciousness, that shift is really essential, sort of the paradigm shift, which really, you know, there's no... But that that's not a mechanical intervention that we can make. It's a, it's a humans are complex living organisms and that is a complex um, living challenge for all of us to step up and into a level of embodied awareness that allows us to make better decisions and, and uh, co-create better institutions and, you know, up-level our approach to business and, politics. And, um, you know, I do see signs of hope everywhere and in equal measure, I see signs of despair. It's a very fascinating time in that way where, you know, simultaneously we can sort of see the future emerging with, um, and I think this was very present in the, in the, the, the Bretton Woods, uh, 75th anniversary conference that, that uh, Galia and, and company put together. And, um, and in other places, I see it all around. I'm very in- inspired by other projects in the space common stack. And I'm excited by the uh, conference, the unconference that you're putting together. Um, I'm excited to see conversations all over the world that are kind of hitting the nail on the head in some ways, but also somehow all feel, just all seem like they're falling short. And, uh, you know, with such urgency, I constantly feel, you know, at region network, it's like we're, um, you know, sometimes I feel like we're shoveling holes in the sand and the tides coming up. <laughs> you know, cause there's so much work to do. There's so much transformational from the ground up infrastructural work to do. Meanwhile, immediate action is needed. Um, you know, you sort of picking yourself up by your bootstraps, <laughs> which is impossible if you think about it. You can't pick yourself up by his boots. <laughs> you need mm-hmm. something, you know, to step up onto or someone to, you know, give you a hand or, or whatever. So, yeah, it's just a fascinating, fascinating time.
2: But I would add there, uh, Greg, I think some of the things that could be done are actually of a, uh, this is, some is low-hanging fruit in the sense that we, um, if you look at how we actually can influence, I think it's on the consumption, investment and the voting basis, right? So if you look at uh, for consumption, one of the elements and investing at the same time, I think the biggest challenge so far has been what I call, and you already referred to um, maybe inadvertently about the visualization challenge. So one of the elements, I think, and there I have to uh, give credit to uh, the people of Planet Tracker, amongst other things. But I also wonder why Bloomberg is not doing more uh, in terms of visualization and data release with respect to environmental or sustainable finance. So I think there's been some increment with what he's doing on Bloomberg uh, Green, but still, I, you know, for, you know, he was the head of the G20. Um, the, the the challenge for um, the, the financial disclosure on the stress test, on the climate stress tests, so the, the TCFDs. And, you know, he could have easily released, for example, CO2 PPM. And that's, you know, a daily observation out of a Hawaii uh, observatory. And so we could, every day, we could see on our uh, screen, you know, the, uh, or, or on the newsreel, the daily observation of how much CO2 uh, PPM uh, there the, 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 the would be, uh, you know, observed. It would start a conversation with your kids, you know, at the breakfast table, uh, at the breakfast table, or at the dinner table. So I think it would start a conversation about, okay, how could, what could we do about a footprint? You know, how could we consume differently? How could we live uh, differently? It would, it would start a conversation about how to invest. You know, what, you know, could we make sure that we, we bring this number down? And ultimately, how we vote, right? So, that I, I think, you know, where, where Michael and again i don't want to castigate michael bloomberg here but in 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 general i think what is missing is you know that the financial data disclosure that would make some decisions more um or you make some decisions with a lot more intent right so you do have the data at hand you know and then you say okay i'm going to make this decision because it's going to impact this way or all we're going to try and do is reduce that number you know below the or at least two to the 350 um uh you wish a kind of kind of level for the co2 ppm but in the absence of that it is very difficult to 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 have the meaningful discussion right so what does it mean uh, right now for the paris agreement uh, 2015 objective to bring down so we are currently at uh, 36 billion of tons of, of of co2 to bring it down to zero you know how how do we achieve that i think and there's This is what I also would say, I think, in in a sense that we have, you know, not fully uh, exploited the the, the potential to visualize that properly and what certain pathways, what if the pathways would be, what would that mean? You know, you have the drawdown project from Paul Hawken, I think was unique in a sense that it's, it's bringing tangible solutions to help alleviate some of the concerns. But what I would have loved to see is that there is an agreement uh, at nation level in absence of national level, maybe at global major cities, okay, this is of all these Paul Hawkins' the different proposals. These are the ones that are we going to implement to bring down that pathway to bring down to to to, to zero, um, uh, you know, uh, percent in in two thousand fifty. That's something that's missing. I think you see these curves, but I think it's it's. I am not aware of any. Again, bar bar some of the the well, I have to say laudable work on the on on the on the part of uh, Planet Tracker and carbon tracker uh, to to visualize those elements. But more work should be done so that you can, uh, when you do have a annual shareholder meeting at uh, JP Morgan, you could say, okay, fine, JP Morgan, uh, you are allotting 250 uh, billion of loans uh, to the fossil fuel. Well, we hear this is the carbon budget that we have. What is your contribution to scaling it down? What is your contribution to, to managing to, or even to mitigate it? So you have a tangible tool In the absence of a tangible tool or in the absence of a visualization tool it is very very difficult to have a meaningful conversation or a debate
1: yeah definitely and i think that circles around to initially you know uh, i think before we started recording the the podcast but when we were just checking in i was sort of asking you how it was going and you were commenting about the, ch- the the present moment challenge and sense making that we have all of these conflicting or or just complex pieces of information about you know co- you know COVID morbidity COVID mortality COVID related um, um, oh. virulence and um, you know it. <laughs> Can we get good data from China? Can we get, get good data from Sweden? You know, what happened in Italy? What's happening in the United States right now? You know, what do you believe and where is it being reported and whatnot? So there is this sort of like, in the information age, the current moment, you know, of social networks and, you know, kind of a, a erosion of trust in institutions that's taken place over the past 10 years or so, Um with this groundswell of available information, but challenge of vetting quality of information. So we have more information than ever, but we don't know what of it is junk and what of it isn't. And we have this very fragmented sense-making apparatus at the moment, you know, how do you create consensus about the sort of, um, you know, intersubjective reality or objective reality in order to have a real conversation with a group of leaders in which everybody kind of has a base, uh, you know, a baseline of understanding of, um, you know, here's the state of the world, here's the economic consequences of the following, you know, elements of reality, be it, you know, PPM of CO2 or, you know, uh, the the 26 billion tons of topsoil that's eroded every year, due to agricultural practices <laughs> i mean if that's not a you know indicator of a, a malfunctioning economy i don't know it is that one um but but again like how do you just you know what does it look like to create the a, a process whereby the scaffolding of reality is sort of like vetted and assembled so that the people so th- so that a group of people can can sort of have a conversation within that in such a way that intelligent conclusions that are you know mutually beneficial are taken because it seems like it, at the moment that is certainly at a societal level we're very far from that people can't even agree on you know basic facts you know it's been uh, our sense making apparatus has been undermined I love you. So, you know, and to me, actually, that is one of the great usages of Web3 and blockchain is actually being able to create chains of provenance of attestations about reality, not in a deterministic way, but in a way where the, the, you know, the ledger of who said what when and whether it proved to be accepted by others as true or not. Is kind of publicly available. I think that starts to cut, that starts to create a system where you can start to make sense again of, of things. But we're a little ways, I mean, you know, we may be a couple of years out from that. And in the meantime, we have this moment where we have to make decisions and, and you know, we have to hopefully, we, we hope that our institutions are making good decisions how to influence the Fed to be, like, for me, I was like, wow, you know, if, if, if our government wanted to, you know, in this sort of like um, crisis capitalism, you know, doctrine kind of Naomi Klein kind of analysis of what's happening. Okay, well, here we go. We have the largest transfer of wealth in a generation happening right now. We're in the middle of it. What would have happened if we had used this as an opportunity to do a new green deal at a global level? in which we we printed the same amount of money and we just invested it into things. We didn't prop up the failing industries of the past but instead we injected it into the, you know, um, circular economy of the future. So in uh, alas, I think that's not going to happen. I mean, that's not the reality that we live in. But
2: um, we have two issues. I think you know you, you highlighted two issues is one is um, I would say the governance of a solution. I think I'll, I'll give you the example. So we know, for example, there's, you know, as the data nobody uh, discusses about, there are 200,000 daily flights in normal times. So uh, currently there's about 70,000 daily flights, but you know, who is actually, if, if you, you agree on that data, so how do you find a governance or a solution that the fact is, um, okay, how can we scale it down in order to, you know, Bring it more in line with the carbon budget, right? So, because then it says, well, let the market decide on it. Well, the market doesn't take into account the carbon budget, right? So, there's a whole governance issue global, on a global scale that, we, that, is, that we're bereft of or that is not existent at the moment. And the second thing is, you're totally right, the veracity of data. Again, I believe that, you know, with, uh, again, I, I mentioned already before, IoT, uh, IoT smart contracts, third party verification you could you could uh, you know alleviate a lot of the concerns about data veracity and making sure that you do you know have uh, solid data on on some of the elements that you want to measure now the next question is again that like, what is it that you want to measure what are the metrics that you would like to see uh, in order to guide your economy and then allocate capital via uh, you know what i would still deem to be a market mechanism uh, you know allocate capital to the to those objectives that are the most urgent and prioritized by by society so um,
1: question for you. Um when we um a couple of years ago when we were together up at Bretton Woods, um it was the first Gallia gave the first uh Eleanor Ostrom award um out uh in and in, and in, in Bernard Lyotard was not there but he received that and uh just sort of like grounding this whole conversation in the work, you know, the Nobel prize winning work of, of Dr. Ostrom in commons management. Mm-hmm. What do you see the right relationship is between commons and markets? Because I think some people, well, I'll just, I'll just leave it aside what some people do or don't think I'm curious about your thought. What is the right relationship between commons and markets? Um,
2: yeah i think the commons well it can be uh, broadly defined but if if we just stick to um the ones that are um the natural base i think you have to ensure there's an element where you said i can't be like some extraction extraction of profit out of the management of that, those commons, right so i think there's an element where you do act on behalf of uh, mankind in society at large and make sure that you you preserve and you do manage, uh, you know, to the fullest extent of your fiduciary duty, acting on behalf of mankind, so that the the those assets or you know the capital base is um, either regenerated or is actually can flourish even further and uh, can play its use or can play its um, uh, useful uh, role to to society at large. Now again, markets in um, In essence, I think, you know, it is somewhat difficult in a sense that markets could, um, you know, if you start linking a price relationship to those comments, um, there is a lot of things that you could say, fine. Uh, You could come up with with some structured finance solutions and some innovative financing. For example, you could um, say, for example, to an Indonesian um, uh, oil uh, producer, Uh, Palm oil producer listen, I think we uh, if if you give us this this piece of land or this piece of forestry in exchange for you um, staying away from 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 this piece of land to uh, uh, For you then to to forgo your production of palm oil. I think these are innovative structures that have been been concocted Uh, there is also um, lastly, I think in or very recently, you know, National Geographic had uh, the last wild places identified uh, both in picture format and also in, uh, uh, in together in cooperation with the nature conservancy so they, there are options there to work on so what can we do in order to make sure that these are governed or you know be considered you know from the perspective of, of pure management of of a commons um, with a financial construct i think and but you will see that it is mostly you know in the sphere of grant money or in the sphere of uh, philosophy grant uh, sort of philosophy uh, um, uh, giving uh, rather than actually driven or looking for a market yield on on preserving that th- those kind of commons because again there's there's this perverse conflict of interest that occurs that you you might apply a benchmark to the fact that you invested a certain amount of money in the management of those commons compared to an alternative investment, and as long as you do that you you 're going to have those conflicting kind of um, uh, kind of um, uh, interest so but in the as as mentioned before, I think it is about our survival, right? So how can you, what is your ultimate price? What are you ultimately willing to pay for the preservation of those assets, not only for you, but also for the generations, for your kids, for your grandkids, and, and uh, you know, an intergenerational kind of uh, uh, shift of value? That's, um, again, the consideration that we already touched upon uh, on some previous occasions. Yeah,
1: definitely. And I, I think... Th- little color on my perspective, I tend to think of markets as encapsulated by commons, for that is to say, you know, for instance, um, I grew up in Alaska, and in Alaska, there's one of the best examples of sustainable fisheries management in the world. Um, it may or may not be actually the best example of commons management but it does manage the fish, fishery in a sustainable way and you see a mashup where people are choosing market mechanisms where there's a where there's social consensus around a scarcity mechanism and then a market scarcity and in within a threshold to govern the resource but then there's a market mechanism within that for instance there are only so many um license allotments you can only so many fishermen can participate right um and only so many fish there's like this flexible so many fish have to escape up the rivers you know um and so they've sort of they have the science down that you can fish a certain number of days you can you know, they sort of restrict even the license holders. So the license holders can participate in the fishery, but then there's restrictions, you know, the day of the week, and then these other things to to ensure that there's like a flow of fish. And then once you hit an escapement in the river, then it's sort of like all of the license holders then can harvest as much as they want after that point, after that threshold has been passed. And then of course, all of those license holders are selling onto a free market, they're selling salmon out to whoever, to you know canneries and and packaging facilities and fresh markets in Asia and whatever. And so there's sort of like a, a fusion there where you see market mechanisms being designed and applied within boundaries, sort of objective reality boundaries, you know. And so that's kind of a that has colored my perception of. You know whether we acknowledge it or not we have sort of a planetary commons we have nested commons at a watershed level just on the ecological sense we also have digital commons and the market mechanisms and how we choose to govern those market mechanisms either are coherent with the health of those commons or not but we have the ability as users of those commons to choose the threshold of operation to, to use a whole variety of different design mechanisms, whether it's licenses or, you know, whatever it is, there's lots that sort of like create the right either market mechanism or, a, and I actually think there's a whole continuum beyond, you know, what people generally consider as markets, but you know, there's auctions and all, all sorts of things. Those are all markets clearly, but that's kind of how I hold it. I conceptualize it. Whether we acknowledge it or not, we're operating within these nested commons and markets are either in service to the health of the commons or they're not? That's like the, the question, you can just sort of like be kind of objective about measuring that. I'm not sure how that resonates to you, Frank.
2: Well, I think it, it resonates in a sense um, that, you know, what what you uh, you could promote also the management of commons. So I'm gonna take an example, which, you know, has taken an awful lot of time and resource on the part of Europe, but I think it's it's one of those investments in terms of priority. Um, It was called the the Great Green Wall, and that was initially an initiative of the organization of African countries to build a green wall. So, uh, you know, this is like uh, six miles wide, so six uh, miles wide, sorry, you know, trees across uh, from West to East Africa. And um, so the the, the goal was actually uh, multifold in a sense that it wanted to uh, end uh, the extension of the desert. They wanted to create local local communities, you know, uh, local resilience, and um, you know, Europe got interested because it was for them also a certain way to potentially mitigate the flood of refugees coming to uh, Europe. So, in in this instance, what could could have been done additionally is now you could all these trees that have been planted uh, in in across the uh, Africa now you could identify them through visual you know, means, uh, be it satellite or be it, uh, any other medium. And you could also then extract the fact that they have this carbon offset capacity. So you could identify it, mo- monetize it. And so uh, it could be used so the African countries could also additionally sell it to um, industrial entities that might be consuming in excess of their uh, allotted uh, quota. So this is another mechanism of, of commons or how you promote and manage commons. Again, it's not ideal, it's not perfect, but it, you know, definitely gives opportunity to uh, things that didn't exist before. So there was no resource for African countries, and now all of a sudden you do create this kind of uh, opportunity. So, um, yeah, th- th- there's many ways that you can you can do this. You could do this for fish. You could do this for um, olives, in 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 the sense. Uh, but you could also ultimately, I think, as importantly, also for democracy, right? So I think that these are things you know we, we don't deem. Uh, the, the fact that can we have free elections we take it you know too much for granted and so now we do have um, also applications and methodologies in place you know that are emerging to make sure that our commons of free voting or free um, elections can actually be ensured that's another element you know where the blockchain is as a basis for for uh, creating or availing that opportunity
1: mm-hmm yeah Great. Well, I'm just noticing we're up at the little past the top of the hour and um I want to respect your time and I know I've got a couple things to do this afternoon before I wrap up my week and uh yeah, so I just want to say thank you very much for taking the time to to chat Frank and um I hope you stay uh, healthy and well and um yeah, let's uh, let's continue to work together to try to um, you know, help um, bring solutions and, and opportunities to the fingertips of all of those humans out there who are currently making decisions and um, all those institutions who are currently playing a role uh, for better or worse with you know the health of the planet so thanks for thanks for taking the time it was a delight to chat and um, looking forward to hang out with you at, at the upcoming unconference that you're hosting.
2: Thank you so much. It was a true pleasure, Greg. And as I said, I think it's uh, foremost is uh, trying to create as much uh, platforms and ideas as possible because the ideas are going to come from the crowd. And so, um, and I have a lot of uh, faith in the young generation. So uh, let's uh, let's keep on working on that and see if we can uh, make it happen.
1: All right. Thanks so much. Have a great
2: afternoon. You too. Take care. Bye-bye.